listening to the Uloft podcast presented by United IUP, a community of college students and young adults in Indiana, Pennsylvania, who are dedicated to unite with each other and Christ to change the world around us. We hope that this podcast raises questions and answers others while ultimately starting a conversation to discover unifying biblical truth in this chaotic world. Well, I don't know if it'll be a good story, but we always had like a big party. Um, we're talking about baptism when I got baptized. So I was 13. We always did it after 13. Um, we had a big party that everyone in the church was invited to at our house. <clears throat> we got baptized um, and it was like a big celebration, which is like what baptism should be, right? And it's like the whole church gets together and witnesses like you confirming your faith. And it's like, it's a really beautiful thing. And my dad would like write um, a little letter for each and every single one of us to talk about like, you know, you have grown up surrounded in faith, but now like you have made this faith your own kind of deal. And it was, it was really lovely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's baptism is celebrating the, the most important decision you'll yeah, ever you make possibly make and the most important transformation that will ever happen to you. And so right. I think that, you know, if we afford celebrations to things like birthday parties and yep. things like that, graduations, it, like, like it that. puts into perspective, like we have huge celebrations. The biggest celebrations that we typically have as human beings are people's weddings. Right. Mm hmm. And technically, that is only the second most important conversation or uh, decision that you will ever make in life. Most people think it's the most important decision you'll ever make in life. It's not. It's the second most. Um, the decision to follow Jesus or to not, you might make that decision in the negative, um, but you've still made that decision one way or another. That is actually the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And so the question is, should baptism celebrations be even more celebrated than what we do at weddings. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective because then you think like, okay, if you're going to be baptized, maybe you take like six months to plan it or like yeah, a year to yeah, plan yeah, yeah. it and you spend, Which, you know, $5,000 on it like like some people do for weddings. Yeah. And it's, you could, we could get into whether or not we should even be doing that for weddings. Right, right. But in, in the Methodist church in particular, like as a pastor, if someone, if like, uh, so we do infant baptisms in the Methodist church and I know you don't do that here at Summit Church, but um, like whether it's for an infant or a, a teenager or an adult, like I as a pastor will sit down with a family um, weeks and weeks and weeks beforehand. And I imagine you guys probably do this too. Um, and we'll have, I'll have an ongoing conversation with the pastor. I'll have an ongoing conversation with the teenager, with whoever, or uh, not the pastor, the parents, with whoever it is. And we'll like talk about like what this means, like what it means in the Methodist church, what the significance of it. Like we'll take weeks and weeks to go over what baptism is before we ever actually get to the baptism part. It's, similarly, I mean, you could probably, and this is probably a good way of thinking about it. It's like premarital counseling. Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, it's like, I'm going to tell you about what it means to be a Christian now that you're making this decision for yourself and you're making it public to everyone else, what are the expectations of what this will look like for you as an individual, for you in your life as a church, for your service to the church, for your service to neighbor, right? Um, in the Methodist church, we have, when you become a member, which you have to be baptized to become a member, um, the, the, va the oath that you make, the vow that you make is to give of yourself in presence, prayer, practice, service and something else um and in giving um and, and so you know you are saying i'm committing to the methodist church that i will show up in presence 
um, both in like in service opportunities for the church, but being present when the church is open um, in service and prayer um, and giving. And that's both in like of talents and gifts and also like monetarily too. Um, and it's like, we go over that before you get baptized, right? Because a lot of people get baptized and become a member um, in the Methodist church. And so you do a lot of that at the same time. Yeah, so it is kind of like premarital counseling. That's one of the things that I enjoyed about when I learned about Wesley and the foundations of the Methodist church is just the the sense of importance and gravitas that he put on the things of the church. Yeah. You know, and just like, I I, I seem to remember the reading about love feasts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Love feasts are kind of like... Uh, big dinners that you could be invited to, but in order to be invited to them, you had to have a ticket and you had to have a ticket as a consequence of good behavior within the church. Well, and so it wasn't just love feasts. It was actually communion as a whole. Um, So way back. Oh, by the way, this is the You Laugh podcast. And if you're listening, (laughs) uh, I'm Caleb and we're Michael. This is backwards. We're doing this way backwards. We we forgive you for thinking (laughs) that this is like a Methodist podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We just got rolling and then we went with it. Um, but yeah, so this is just, so Methodists were the OG small group people. Um, before small groups were even a thing, Methodists had things called bands and classes. And I may have mentioned this on this podcast before. I don't remember. Um, but bands were a group of two to four same sex people in a group. So like men and women. Um, and they meet, they met weekly and they would always go through like there were the Wesleyan. I think there were like seven questions or something like that that were um, like serious questions that I don't remember them all. But like one of them is like, have you committed any sins this week? And then you'd have to confess all of your sins. And one of them was, are there any things that you don't know if they were a sin that we need to talk through so that you can either confess it or we can, you know, grow in wisdom by figuring out and discerning together what yeah, the line really was smart. on something. Yeah. So you had to meet weekly, right, for the bands. And then a class was a group of bands, like let's say two bands of men and two bands of women who came together, um, and they were a class. So if you're thinking you live in a small town in the 1800s, it's like you know you don't have that many people living in a town anyway. And by and large, you had to look out for your neighbor because – you survived together through things, right? And so you actually have very close-knit families that are also make up these bands and classes, right? You got tickets for going to your bands and classes, and you were always welcomed into church, right? That was never a problem. But to be an active member in the church that had standing for voting power for also getting communion, um, you got tickets for these things, right? And it was expected for you to participate in the life of the church for you to participate in the life of the church. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so people who didn't, you know, and it sounds exclusionary and it's like the church should never be exclusionary. But by operating in that manner, which with having such a high standard and a high bar for, um, I'll say membership, the term wasn't really membership at that point in time, but we'll, because that's what we use these days, membership into the church, they grew um, in a span of 60 years from about 5,000 people to being one in three Americans were Methodist. So 5,000 yeah, people to one in three Americans were Methodist yeah. by the uh, end of the Civil War. And we had a big split over the Civil War. 
um, because you had Methodists in the North who were abolitionists and you had Methodists in the South who were saying, no, we think it's fine. To and they worked really hard for that growth too. Like yeah. That's one of the things to remember about the Methodist movement is that it didn't kind of just like spread on overnight. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they were, the traveling preachers would cover huge amounts yeah. of ground. So uh, Francis Asbury, who's one of the, he was one of the two first bishops in the United, in the Methodist church would his yearly travel cycle was he went from Buffalo to Savannah, Georgia. So he'd be in Buffalo in the summer and he would plan his route so that he'd be in Georgia by the winter um, and then back up in Buffalo by the summer so that he wasn't like freezing in Buffalo and dying of heat in Georgia. And um, this was on like horseback and or on foot. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, the, the Methodist church went to great lengths to like, spread the gospel wherever they went. If there was a new town that popped up somewhere, they would send some Methodists there and they would, which is why like in every small town and every single place in Western Pennsylvania and generally speaking across the United States, you will find a Methodist church and a Dollar General. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's funny. So yeah, the Dollar Generals came later, but the Methodist church, you would find Methodists in every little small town everywhere. So, yeah, there's your little bit of Methodist history. But that's not what we were originally here for. Yeah, so... It's just okay. your fun little... That was your fun little added tidbit for today. I think it, I think it's a great way to open up. Um, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the questions that came in. Uh, if you attend United regularly, then you know that we have a QR code that's usually up on the screen before, during, and after the sermon. And what you can do is you can scan this QR code and then submit questions. And sometimes we answer questions at the end of the night. And sometimes we, uh, we let you know that we're going to answer these questions on the podcast. And so we, uh, some of these questions came in from our previous series, which was about anxiety and we didn't have time to answer these. We answered some of them at the end of one of the nights, but then we ran out of time. So, uh, we had promised that we were going to answer them on the podcast. And that is what here we are. We try to be people of our words as best as we can indeed we want to get those tickets to those love feasts that's right (laughs) and if you're wondering we're missing kendall today because he's in greece so yeah yeah he's a long way off you Um, just get michael and i in our thoughts it's just a dangerous territory it's it's, it's quite entertaining (laughs) uh okay so the first question is this how can i stop being anxious about clinging onto the small amount of hope i have for a situation I want to stay hopeful, but it's becoming so difficult. I've been praying and reading my Bible, but it's just so hard to stay hopeful. So imagine you have a really difficult situation um, on maybe one end of the spectrum. And I'm not trivializing this because this can be very, very, very difficult. Say it's like a first relationship that's falling apart. And the person is thinking like, well, what if she comes back? Or what if he comes back? What could I do to to win this person back? Something from that side of the spectrum all the way to uh, a loved one is sick. And I want this person to stay in my life. I want this person to be able to get better. I want this person to heal. Um, And I'm, I'm anxious because I'm clinging to a small, possibly unrealistic amount of hope that I have for a situation. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with the anxiety without giving up the hope? Maybe that would be a good way to yeah. approach this. So my first thought is a what not to do, maybe. Uh, so this would be from a perspective of, let's say, a friend who wants to have a conversation with this person who's like at their wits end, essentially. I think one of the things that we as Christians do uh, poorly sometimes um, 
is we immediately want to, and, and we do this to ourselves too, and it's not always the most helpful thing. When we're ha in those situations where we're trying to help someone else through those situations, the first thing that we do is like, I don't know what to say. Scripture's always right. Let me just throw some scripture at them and that'll solve it. And then I can just brush my hands of this scenario and beyond. And we'll, we'll give like the good Christian platitudes, which like they're not necessarily wrong. They're just not necessarily helpful either. So it's like, well, you know, God works all things out for the good of those who love him. And it's like, is that true? Yes. Is that helpful in that situation? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we shouldn't do is just be quick to step in with a piece of scripture that, yes, it might be true, but is it tactful in that moment and most useful in that moment to speak that truth? Not always, right? And so that's that's just a warning that to like anyone who is trying to help out in those situations, sometimes the best thing that you can do is walk into that situation they tell you about all of their woes and you just say, yeah, that really sucks. I'm so sorry. Right. Because then you're, you're giving weight to a thing that is very clearly problematic. Right. And that's actually a good thing to do. Like you were saying, we're not trying to, you, you don't want to trivialize anything. Right. So whoever asked this question, whatever that is, I'm so sorry. It probably sucks. And I'm sure that it feels awful to be going through it. And we don't know exactly what the details are of it, but yeah, from, you know, uh, a relationship scenario with a significant other to someone who's been sick long term. It's like, regardless of what that is, that has to suck. And I'm so sorry. And it, I'm, you know, I, I wish you Godspeed in the midst of that. Right. And yeah. that's easy for me to say like over a podcast from a distance. Cause, and it's hard for me to say, cause I don't know exactly what it is, but I think that's a good place to start. Like I'm, this has to be horrible and I'm so sorry that you're going through it, whatever it is. Right. So that's step one, I think. Yeah. There's a couple things to keep in mind when it comes to help, like being the person who's <clears throat> the person who's going to help someone in a situation like this. The, the first is that Caleb had mentioned, um, you know, like citing scripture that talks about like, you know, God's going to work all things out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that sort of thing. And, and while yes, that's true, um, that requires an eternal frame of mind and right. someone who's suffering a lot does not have that. Yeah. Typically. They're going day to day. Like yeah. their window is shrunk. Yeah. And so in their shrunken window, that might not be true. Yeah. Uh, and it just actually might not be true. So like, for instance, over the next three days, God might not be working out everything for good over the next three days. Right. And so you have to be careful. And, and that's one of the reasons why he's articulating that. Um, the second thing, when, when we talk about trivializing these sorts of issues, uh, you have to be especially careful about that when it is an issue that you have already survived. Yeah. I think that's where people start to trivialize. And, yeah, because we think, oh, I've been through this. You know, I know exactly what it takes to get through this. It's no big deal because you're looking at it from an outside perspective at this point. And it's like, yeah, but if you stop and remember what it was like to be in the midst of that and how helpless and hopeless you often feel... Um, that's when you can start being particularly helpful. Um, and if you haven't been through it, like that's okay too. You can at least try to empathize and say, what would it feel like if I was in this scenario? Um, and you have to be particularly careful about what you say in those moments because you don't know exactly. And even if you have been through that, you still don't know exactly what's going on. Right. There's no scenario that any human being plays out in suffering that is identical to another. You can get very close, but never identical. And so... Um, just being a kind and present person in general, a, um, and this is what people typically need, 
a, a calming, non-anxious present, right? Yeah, and so yeah. we were talking about like, how do I, I am struggling with anxiety in the midst of this. If you're trying to help someone with that, being a non-anxious present is one of the best things that you can it's do. It's huge for <clears throat> sure. So if you're going through something yeah. like that. Okay. So now to switch the, to like, okay, that's if you're helping. Now yeah. If you're going through it. The first few things that come into my mind when I think about this are you need to watch your relationship with alcohol and things like drugs and other forms of escapism. Yeah. Just beware of that. Um, because that can turn into its own problem that spirals out of control, which then, you know, 50 years later, whenever the original problem's gone, you still have this problem that you got right. yourself stuck in yeah. that is a consequence of the initial anxiety, but is not directly, you know, it's not directly caused by it because right. the anxiety might be gone, but you still have the problem. So that's one thing. And, and it, it, you know, we think like drugs, alcohol, of course, I'm not going to do that, right? Um, but video games are a form of escapism. You can use your significant other as a form of escapism. And now anytime you, and what happens with that, especially with other people is like the moment you have anxiety and depression about anything, or you have a bad situation going in life, you immediately run to that other person and now you're codependent on them. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. Yeah. Instead of developing in yourself the skills to cope with it. Right. Yeah. Because that's going to take you away from God, right? Like the codependence on another person, it's really essentially what you're doing is you're slotting that person in for, for the place that God should have in your life. And yeah, that's, that's dangerous stuff. I think that, um, another, another important piece here would be to in the midst of the anxiety, when you're just going minute to minute, day, day to day, uh, make sure that you always tell yourself the truth about yourself and about others in the middle of that. I think Mm. it can be tempting to start lying about things, uh, and to start, uh, justifying bad behavior and to start justifying like a victim mindset in the midst of those sorts of things. And I think that those can lead to all kinds of other pathologies that like, once again, that will stick with you after the fact and and will make the initial problem worse probably Uh, because you know, the reality is yes, your situation's difficult and it's hard and we're, no one wants to trivialize that, but it is also the case that you are a fallen human being. And you know, I think that I think that unless a person is tremendously sanctified, maybe it doesn't even, maybe you don't even get to this place until you're glorified in heaven, right? Like where, where <laughs> you, you're, you're, there's some part of you that's going to always be looking for justifications for sin and yeah. avenues yep. to practice, to walk in the flesh. Yeah. And so, you know, probably be aware of that too. Yeah. So, um, one of the hard things about being a pastor, but also one of the blessings about being a pastor um, and you, you know, someone who's not a pastor might not think of this as a blessing, but I have the, the, um, the honor of doing funerals for people all the time. Um, and even people I don't know, um, like a funeral home will call me up and say, Hey, we don't have a, this family doesn't have a pastor. Would you be willing to come in and do it? And I always say, yeah, of course I'd be happy to, if I, if it fits into my schedule. Um, but one of the things that I always mention in a funeral sermon, and this is so for the person who wrote this, who is particularly feeling hopeless, um, who maybe is, I, I don't know if you're trying to find hope in a place that maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe you have the right kind of hope, but you just are in a particularly hopeless situation. One of the things, it, and in those situations, I think what makes them so difficult, especially from a Christian perspective, is you you feel as if God is far away, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. 
and I know there is a good shepherd, but he don't feel like he's here with me. I don't feel like I'm walking in the right direction. I don't think he's leading me anywhere. Um, and that's a very real thing. I, as a pastor, feel that often. It's like when I go through hard things in life, and I've been through many hard things, it doesn't always feel like God is particularly present. In fact, it seems sometimes, and you know, I'm guilty of this, saying like blaming God for whatever the thing is that is going on in your life. I, I've even done that, right? Um, and do I know that it's not necessarily God's fault? Yes. Do, is he an easy person to blame in the midst of it? Also, yes, right? And so I think that's just like an easy thing that we as humans do. It's not necessarily a right thing. But so how do we, the question becomes, if God is actually present, and we know he is because the scriptures say he is, what do we do to find him, right? Because mm-hmm. that's one of the things. It's like, if I'm feeling particularly hopeless and God is the source of all hope, but I don't feel like I can find God, I need to go find him in some capacity in the midst of my misery, sorrow, sadness, loneliness, hopelessness, because he is the source of all of the antidotes to those, right? And so one thing I always tell my um, people who are going through funerals, and this might sound so, like, one, not true, um, and two, basic, pedestrian maybe, Um, I always say, like, hey, quit looking for, like, miracles in those moments. Um, Big ones, particularly. Right, yeah, yeah. Because you're going to miss everything, right? Um, I, in my 28 years of living, which doesn't sound like it's long, but especially considering as a pastor, I've helped a lot of, I work in a church full of old people. I help a lot of people in grieving families through death in particular, losing someone to sickness. Like, I've done a lot of that over the past five, six, seven years. Um, When someone brings a casserole to your doorstep, that is Jesus showing up at your doorstep, yeah. right? When a friend unexpectedly calls you and they don't know what's going on, but they call you because they're like, I just haven't chatted with you in a while. That's Jesus calling you on the phone, yeah. right? Um, when you get a text from a friend that you that says, hey, would you want to grab lunch with me? That's Jesus texting you to grab lunch with him, right? Um, all of these small things... When you wake up in the morning and your cup of coffee tastes exceptionally good um, and you didn't get any sleep last night because you were tormented by negative thoughts, that's Jesus trying to give you a little bit of reprieve. Yeah. And I think we so often don't think of it in that way, but I think that's actually a really healthy way of thinking about these things. Yeah, and I think it's If possible. you're listening to this podcast for whatever reason because you texted that, I'm not saying I'm Jesus for the record and neither is Michael, though he is holier than I. Um, Like it could be that God is trying to speak through this podcast to you. Yeah. I think that this is something that's really fast, a fascinating topic to me because I actually think that this might be the primary place we should be looking for the grace of God a lot of times. So one of the things that you said really, really stood out to me, which is that I know that God is present because the scriptures say he's present. Mm. And so I, I would ask, I don't know where he is, but I, I know that he has to be here. Right. And so what role then? Okay. So I actually think that as a Christian, you're best off and this is probably the right way of going about it to uh, predicate your relationship, your personal relationship with God on the scriptures. And if you don't have that peace and if your relationship is primarily founded on what you feel about God and and feeling the presence of God, um, 
I'm not saying you can't feel the presence of a God. I'm but not saying that never happens. You won't. But, but what if, yeah, what if that's only one dimension of the yeah. presence of God? Yeah. And what if it's not even the primary dimension? Right. And so it's like, okay, if you're missing the primary dimension, if you're missing the primary dimension of the presence of God, which I believe is in the scripture, um, and you're also missing the primary means of God's grace mm-hmm. in your life, you're missing two of the most important primary right, right. pieces of being a Christian. <clears throat> yeah. And so like Caleb's saying, you look for God's grace in these small things. G.K. Chesterton said that man doesn't see God because he won't look low enough. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah, really yeah. that's exactly same. right. That's, yeah, what, yeah, that's yeah. what it is. It's, it's just, and man, your faith will come alive in a way that you've never experienced before yep. if you start looking for God in the mundane. Yep. Because it's all his world. It's all his creation. You right. Know, it's like, if every good thing is from God, and the scriptures say that, like every blessing is a blessing from God, rained down from heaven, and the storehouse is a blessing that He has for us, right? So, if a casserole is a blessing to you in the midst of going through hardship, is a bowl of soup is a blessing to you, that means it was God, right? And so, uh, if you actually look in the, and actually these are really helpful because what you said earlier about the time frames to which people think in, if you're thinking in an hour by hour time frame, guess what can fit in an hour? A lunch with a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And like now you actually have moments with God that are uh, tangible and palpable and can fit into the time frame of suffering that most people are working through, right? So this, if you ask this question, one of the things that, well, again, one, I'm sorry for whatever you're going through. I'm sure it's hard. One of the things that might be helpful though is and and because we have this habit, when we go through hard things, we isolate ourselves. If someone texts you and wants to grab lunch with you, go to lunch with them, and you might might meet God there. Yeah, right? even if you don't feel like going. Even just, if you don't go. feel like going. Yeah. And yeah, the person who invites you to lunch might say even the total wrong things, but the fact that you got to eat a meal with someone and potentially find God in it is is the right thing to do because it forces you to search for it, right? And I think what we do in the midst of hardship is we just, we sit and stop, right? And stop searching, stop looking, and we just kind of, whatever is around us is our situation, and that's it, right? And so we feel hopeless because we don't know where to go. We don't want to move in any direction. That's what hopelessness feels like, right? I can't move forward because I don't know if that's the right way. I don't. I know the way I'm not supposed to go is the way that's behind me. I don't know if I should go left. I don't know if I should go right. It, it freezes you up, right? Um, and searching for God requires you to move in a direction. Right, yeah. And that's the thing. I think people think there's a wrong direction to move. And I'm like, I probably not. Like, I think the sitting still, and I know the scriptures say, like, still and be wait and wait for mm-hmm. God. And yes, that is true. Um, but I think there's seasons for that and there's seasons for moving for God. And if you start searching after him, because the scriptures also say, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. And so sometimes the scriptures fit in some scenarios and they don't in others. So like the sitting and still and wait for God can be beneficial in those situations, but sometimes you got to be on the move for it too. Yeah. And you and see take this. people up on those offers of, of small generosity that are, that are a blessing from God. You see this happen to people all the time um people come to jesus 
during their worst moments of life. That's mm-hmm. so frequent. Yeah. I, it might even be the majority of people uh, probably. who are c- experiencing conversion. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because they're paying attention to these things in the midst right, right. of those situations. Well, and, and Will Rush said this during his last thing. He's like, um, like God wants to, God wants people to know him, right? Primary thing that we know about God, God wants to reveal himself to us, which is otherwise he wouldn't have revealed himself to us in any capacity, right? He wants people to know him. He wants people to know what his character is like, right? And he's, I don't remember exactly, I'm going to paraphrase and I might butcher it, but he said something along the lines of why it seems as if God shows up in our lowest point is because no one else could help you but God. And so you are forced to look at God in those moments, right? Because doctors can't help you, because people can't help you, because your friends and your family can't help you. And the only one that could possibly do something about it is God. And that's when God shows up because he's the only one that can do something. Or you finally see God. It could be that God was there the whole time. But you finally see God because God's the only one that can do something about your situation. Yeah, and so that's one of the things maybe to take away from this particular uh, question concerning anxiety over a tragic or difficult situation is that without without invalidating the pain of the situation, you have an incredible opportunity to enter into relationship with God unlike anything you've had before. Yeah. Um, you know, God draws near to the brokenhearted and yep. it's like this, this, this Come situation. Come to me all who, like half the scriptures, <laughs> half the Psalms are things about like, um, my mattress is full of tears and I'm worried about everything and, but you're here and you're good or come to me all you who are weary and I will give you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Right. And it's like, Jesus seems to particularly love people who are going through anxious, depressive, hopeless moments. Yeah, man, that's good. Okay. So next, uh, question here, how do you deal with the anxiety of being lost on what to do in the future? So maybe you're graduating college, maybe you're trying to decide whether or not to start a new job. Maybe you don't know whether or not you should stay in the job you have. Um, Those could all be reasons why you might be lost when it comes to the future. So that is like not having a direction, not being able to observe yourself, move forward to a goal um, is a recipe for anxiety and negative emotion. Oh, it sucks. And I've been there. It's like, gosh, what do I do next? And then you're stuck and you don't know what to do. And then because you're not moving forward, you have so much time to just sit and think and all those negative thoughts creep in and now you're just wallowing. And it's like, that's hard. Yeah. That's really hard. The first thing I would say to this is that you probably, and I say you probably, because I think most people have this, um, especially when they're young, um, you probably have this thought in your head that you have to streamline your progress into your future so that you don't want to make bad mistakes and or u-turns or wastes of time those sorts of things you have to get rid of that like abandon that first and the reason i would say abandon that first is because like caleb said earlier you have to start moving in a direction and that's because sometimes preferably not backwards but other than that any direction will kind of do yeah because what what happens when you move in a direction is that new new information is revealed to you as to whether or not that's the right direction but you never get that information if you don't move in the direction to begin with and so you have to start doing it badly and then recalibrate as you go and then put a finer point on it but you'll never get to the finer point if you don't start moving yep it's like so if you're so let's say you're graduating from college or let's say you're one of our young adults even at united and you're worried about ending up in a really bad first job 
like that's actually probably okay like you think it's gonna set you up for failure for the rest of your life and it's like every bad job i've ever had i learned more from it than probably any good job i ever had it's like Mm -hmm. i know if you narrow down all the things you know not to do you'll end up where you need where you should be right um and is it better is it the best thing to maybe not have to worry about or doing all the wrong things maybe but i'm not even convinced of that necessarily um because part of learning life is figuring out the wrong things sometimes and is it good to learn from other people's mistakes yes but sometimes it's good to make those mistakes yourself and i'm not saying make mistakes in the sense that like it's okay to sin that's not what i mean i mean it's like it's okay to be trying to figure out what your calling and and vocation should be in life and get it wrong for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And most people who end up successful have stories of how they got it wrong. I mean, very rare. Yeah. They'll tell you about all the things they got wrong first before they tell you about the successes that finally clicked into place. Yeah. And you need that to put things in perspective. Yep. Oh, and here's the other piece. All of you who are listening to this, um, Maybe not all. The vast majority of you who are listening to this are under the age of 30, right? Um, Either you're in college or fresh out, right? We think we have to have this right, right away. And it's like the, so if the average lifespan right now is like 78, 80, that means you've got 60 years left of living. And by the time you get to 78, 80, I'm willing to bet with medical technology that's going to be, I think, People that are born today probably are going to average in the 90 to 100 years lifespans um, fairly regularly just because of the way in which health and technology is progressing, right? I wouldn't be shocked by that if, like, the average lifespan of you and me and everyone listening to this isn't 78, but it's 88, maybe 98, right? Which means you've got 70 years of figuring this out, right? And it's like, okay, you want to retire, so let's say... You've still got 35, 40 years of figuring this out. I have, My dad worked as a school psychologist for 30 years. Um, it was a phenomenal school psychologist, right? Um, excellent at working with kids. But he knew, he kind of had an inkling that he was called to be a pastor. Didn't start it till four, five years ago now. Um, when he was 53 is when he started to actually start working towards being a pastor and serving as a pastor. Was his calling in life to be a pastor? It probably was. Was it wrong for him to work as a school psychologist for 30 years? No, it was not. One, because he helped out a lot of kids. And two, because he gained so much experience that was beneficial for him to serving as a pastor. And it's like, even if you go down the wrong road, do you think that God can't use whatever you learned to do the thing that you have been designed to do? Yeah, for sure. And one of the things, like if you're trying to figure out like we're telling you to go in a direction and then someone who's lost and when it comes to their future choices might hear that and think that that's like, I don't know, not helpful. And so, okay. So like here, here's one thing you can do that will maybe put some boundaries onto what that direction is. Uh, Ask yourself what kind of problem interests you the most? Like what kind of problem about your community or maybe your family or your city or, you know, and you can scale it up from there. Uh, But what problem draws you in? What really bothers you about the world or about the situations that, that you've been in or your community or your church? 
the, the things that bother you are calling to your calling for your attention. Right. And even if that's not a lucrative thing, maybe you should just pursue it anyway and see what happens. Like, m- let's not make money your motivation. I mean, let's be real. Everybody needs money and you, you need it to survive, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Well, and that brings up a question. It's like, what if you're calling in life? What if what you're supposed to do isn't a job? And then therefore you're freed up to just take whatever job you can to make a living so that you can do whatever you're called to do. You know who's a really great example of this? Paul, right? Mm -hmm. He made tents. Was he called to make tents? No. He just made tents as a way to support himself for doing his actual job, which he was called to do, which was like spreading the gospel. That sounds cliche, but like he was actually an apostle and that was his Mm -hmm. job to go from city to city planting churches, right? So it could be, it's like, okay, maybe you're stuck in a really crappy job. Maybe that's the job you actually should exactly have right now because it's a way to make money to support yourself to then do whatever you feel like, whatever that problem is that you have that you feel like God has put it on your heart to pursue that. So don't think of like crappy jobs or not knowing where to go as the wrong thing in life because it could just be that they're the very right thing in life that it frees you to have enough time to pursue what you think God is calling you to do, but it gives you enough money to be able to support yourself. Yeah, and whenever you're doing a job like that, you should make sure that um, you do it in such a way that affords you resources to pursue your calling. So for instance, like if Paul had started making tents and then he was just like, you know what, I want to be the best tent maker this world has ever seen. And I'm just going to set the gospel aside so that I can do that. Right. Like he didn't do that either. So, no. but you should do your job as unto the Lord, but at the same yeah, time, as best as you can, but look for ways to automate it enough yep. to, and, and it doesn't even have to be like a, a tech job to automate yep. it. You can automate it in your mind just by making the things second nature, putting them into a good routine yep. to where you don't have to uh, use any cognitive overhead yep. on that thing anymore. And then make sure you prioritize your calling, prioritize your calling. Like even if you need to take a day off or leave work early, if that's something that is even allowed for you, just to pursue your calling, you should do that. You should prioritize, you can prioritize your calling while working a job that is unrelated to it, Yes, but you have to work the job in the right way. Yes, well, and the other thing is, it's like, it is also very possible that your, what you're supposed to be doing in life changes, right? So what you're supposed to be doing in your 20s and what you've been called to do in your 20s could look different than what it is in your 60s. In fact, it probably will, right? Um, Ultimately, every one of our callings is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The modes at which you do that could be very different. I have friends right now, um, and they're home uh, in the States right now, who are missionaries overseas in the Middle East and the the, um, Arabic-speaking world, Um, and they spent the last two years learning Arabic living among entirely Muslim people um, and serving as missionaries. Will they always do that? Probably not. Does that mean that they're not following God's calling in their life anymore? No, it's just changed um, mm-hmm. to still spread the gospel. Still, he, you know, he has his degrees in Islamic studies. He knows it. Um, but maybe it changes from being a missionary on the field to now training missionaries because he's got a family and kids and he can't do the traveling and living abroad thing as well anymore, but he can train people to do that, right? So what he could do as uh, just a married couple, no kids, um, is different from maybe what he can do in the future, right? And it's like his calling changed. I mean, the ultimate calling, it didn't change, but the the avenue in which to pursue that calling did change. So, you know, it's not that he was wrong to do what he was doing to begin with. You know, he worked in um, 
a refugee camp here in Pittsburgh for a while. And what he did was he worked for a summer camp that brought in inner city kids to the camp. And he coordinated trying to get some of those kids from the um, Somalian refugee population up to the camp. And it's like, did he feel like that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing in life? Yes. Was that probably what he was supposed to be doing in life at that moment? Yes, because mm -hmm. he learned things about it. And he learned things about that population that would serve him later in the next thing that he would pursue. Mm -hmm. So the, the, is it okay to feel like you're not doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, that's fine. You'll probably feel that often in the midst of those. What you need to be doing is finding ways in which you are learning things that only this opportunity can provide that will benefit you in the future. Yeah. Never stop sharpening yourself and preparing yourself to walk through the door when God opens it. Um, the next question is, what's the best way to make friends in college when you have social anxiety? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, hmm. This, I think, part of the answer is what we talked about earlier, what Caleb talked about earlier about just saying yes to things. So there's this idea of expanding your surface area for serendipitous encounters. And that's kind of like a fancy way of saying, just say <laughs> yes to things. Like if someone wants to take you to Eaton Park, like a group of people and you're like, oh, I'm terrified because I'm terrible with people and I'm, no one's going to like me, just go anyway. And maybe no one likes you. And maybe you learn a little bit about why no one likes you. Yeah. And so then you can go to the... The odds of that happening are actually probably slim. If they invited right. you to Eaton Park, they yeah. probably want you in your presence. You're probably your own worst enemy. Yeah. And that's one of the By things that's stirring you up your anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another one here too. Uh, here's a rule. And preachers can tell you this with certainty because most of them have experienced it. Uh, al almost. <laughs> I'm excited yeah. for this. Al almost everyone... Uh, is thinking about themselves almost all of the time. And the proof for this is that you can stand in front of a whole group of people and say, th say something just astonishingly stupid. And three days later, no, no one's going to remember it. Yep. Yeah, I can say fantastic, wonderful things. I could have God just drop beautiful things into my mind to preach. Not a single person remember it. I could say the dumbest thing ever nobody's going to remember it either, right? Which is kind of a bummer on both counts. But right. on the positive, it's like, I don't ever have to worry about standing up in front of people and making a fool of myself because even if I do, no one will remember, right? Yeah. How many of you listening to this remember every sermon that I've preached? How do you remember it? The last sermon that I preached <laughs> or two ago, right? It's like probably not too much. Um in fact, I don't always remember them. So, you know. Yeah. And that's because people, they, the people that you're worried about judging you and thinking that you're not a great person because of your social anxiety, they're probably also worried about that. Yeah, They're literally doing the exact same thing. So if everyone's thinking about themselves, nobody's thinking about other people and therefore judging them for, you know, being socially anxious. One time I, uh, <clears throat> in the middle of a sermon, I burped into the microphone. Like That's I thought amazing. I pulled it away far enough, but I actually <laughs> didn't. And it came through the mains. And then there were women in the front that laughed at me, <laughs> but I was able to get through the rest of the sermon with no problem because yeah. I knew these people aren't going to remember anything, including that. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the very first sermon that I gave at the churches that I now pastor right now, oh, I feel embarrassed about this. And do I remember this? Yes. If I asked any, if you asked any of my church members, if they remember this, they probably wouldn't, they might not even noticed my fly was down the entire time. <laughs> and I remember, I thought, it was, I remember pulling it up. It must've came down. And I literally, 
I shook people's hands, looked them in the eye, and said, God loves you with my fly down. <laughs> I preached an entire sermon with my fly down. And some of it, I was behind a pulpit. But I walk out in front of my pulpit and into the middle of the stage where everyone... And I'm elevated a little bit. So it's like, people are looking generally in that direction. And I did it the entire time with my fly down. Do any of them remember that? Not a single one, guarantee it. Yeah, and those are situations, this is why this is so important to know, those are situations where everyone's attention is directed to a single person and they still don't remember it. Right, right. So Let alone you're in a room at a dinner at Eaton Park with some friends and people are talking back and forth to each other. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the, the social Even anxiety so. is based on a phantom. Like it's just based on an understanding about people that simply isn't true. Right. And now, is it a very real feeling? Yes. Like, but people can feel very strong emotions and feelings about something that doesn't actually exist all the time. Right. So we're not we're not saying you're wrong for feeling socially anxious about these things. That's, you know, that's normative. Um, especially in this current generation. It's very normative. So we're not saying you're a horrible person for feeling these things. It's just we're telling you that what you're feeling them about and what you're worried about doesn't actually exist by and large. And when you step out and like, so it's it's one thing to hear us say that and you can think, oh, that's trite and that's, you know, whatever. Like it doesn't, like, a, like Caleb saying, the feelings are real. So if the feelings are real, then what does it matter whether the phenomenon is real? But what, it does. What, yeah, what happens is if you step out and you start to discover it for yourself, that it's, that the phenomenon isn't real, yeah. then the feeling goes away. Then yep. you get braver. Yep. Like it's 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 a thousand percent what's what happens. Yep. You talk to most people who um, do some kind of public communication for a living. Um, they probably started out a little bit nervous about it. They might yeah. even still oh, yeah. get a little bit nervous about it. And I think there's some use in nerves to some degree because it keeps you focused and keeps you paying attention. Um, but they know that they, they see the reality of this every time they do it. They, they, they get regular exposure to the reality that what you think people are thinking about all the time and you're, yeah, you yeah, think yeah. they're thinking about you and like all the stupid things that you do and all your shortcomings, they just aren't. Yeah. They just aren't. And the more you see that, the more you see that every social interaction you have has uh, an expiration date yep. on it. Yep. And so that means you get a new chance every time. Yeah. Even if you blow it 10 times yep. in a row, yep. you still have an 11th shot that is going to, that can get you to where you want to be yeah. with those people. And I'll say this. And um, so this is, because I am not a person that gets social anxiety particularly well. So it's, you know, it's hard for like, I try to as much as I can put myself in those situations. There are moments where I get some social anxiety, but by and large, I'm, I don't. So this is a call for all of the people who are listening, who by and large don't get social anxiety or outgoing, extroverted, personable. I would say from a Christian perspective, it is our responsibility and God has given us this like, um, outgoing, personable, non-social anxiety, like demeanor to particularly befriend people who maybe have issues with that, right? If we're all trying to help each other along the way and you're good at something, go find someone who's not and be a friend with them because they might not come to you, right? So this is like, I'm giving you a, a call to be bold with making friends, especially for the people who are extroverted, who are fine in social scenarios, who don't get social anxiety, you should be going out of your way to make friends with people who do have that issue because you are serving the kingdom of God in that capacity. We don't always think of it in that way, but having an outgoing personable spirit and demeanor 
is God's call for your life to use that in positive ways, especially with people who might not. It's easy for us to gravitate to other people who are personable and outgoing, but who we should really be gravitating are to people who don't, who maybe have a hard time making friends, right? Go be friends with them because you might be the only person who does that with them. And I saw a pie chart once that was like how introverts make friends. 95% of it was like, an extroverted person found them and made them friends. Yeah. The other 5% was my cat is my friend. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. yeah, extroverted persons should be going out of their way. Like you have been given a gift, use that gift for the kingdom of God by bringing in people who might consider themselves socially outcasts. Yeah. And you know, if, if you're going about that work and you're trying to do that with someone, it's possible that they'll reject you just because of their social anxiety. And that doesn't there again, if they reject you, you have the responsibility, same as the socially anxious person to remember that that rejection doesn't really matter that much. Like yep. it's, it's going to be out of the person's head a few days later and you can try again, yep. just keep, keep at it. Yep. And another thing we might want to mention here is that, uh, introversion like when we talk about social anxiety and introversion it's possible that you'll overcome your social anxiety and you'll still be an introvert in the yeah, sense oh, that yeah, like yeah, yeah. like i know for myself um i ha used to have some social anxiety that's all gone now but i still am an introverted person yeah, yeah like, they're not the same right like i'd prefer to be you know in a smaller group or maybe like up away from the crowd sometimes yeah, just to yeah, recharge yeah, yeah and and so if you still have some of that that's okay right I think that and it might be a, shocking but i'm actually introverted um, I know people would look at me and like, oh, but he's up front and he's talking to people all the time. And it's like, yeah, that that's true. But I also prefer my own company better than any of you. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love you all. Whoever's listening. I might not even know you, but I love you nonetheless. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So these are, um, these are throwing back when we can maybe do these more rapid fire um, and we'll end on these questions, but these are okay. throwing back more towards the uh, relationship series that we went through, but I, I don't want to miss these because we do take your questions seriously um, and we want to do what we can to speak Help to you. them when yeah. we can. So one of the questions that we had care come about in, you all, that's right. We just don't prefer your company. <laughs> um, <laughs> we prefer you from afar. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, so the question is, what does the Bible say about contraceptives, obviously in the context of marriage? Oh, great question. Um, so you will get a lot of different opinions on this, and I have my own opinion. Am I convinced that that is right? Yeah. Am I okay? Otherwise, I wouldn't believe it, right? But um, do I think that there are people out there with very valid opinions that also could be right? Yes, right? Um, and especially if like, so I didn't grow up Catholic, um, but I, I dated a girl once who was Catholic and her family was Catholic and the Catholic church doesn't do contraceptives and they do natural family planning, et cetera, et cetera. So like the Catholic church has one opinion about it, but, like the entirety of it. And that's like half of Christians in the world. So, um, <laughs> you know, there are lots of opinions on this matter. Um, so one of the things that I, I have a brother who, um, one of his passions, his and his wife's passions, is um, like going around and helping churches talk about like abortion and pro-life and et cetera, all that stuff that comes with it. Because the church should be talking about it. We just don't. We put our hand head in the sand. Um, so they go around and, and, and oftentimes people, especially in the pro-life movement, I think this is a good place to start. We say life starts at conception. Um, and I would agree with that. I think life starts at conception, right? Life starts at conception. Todd, do you agree with that? Absolutely. 
Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> Todd walked in. So yeah, life starts at conception. Um, and so anytime you try to stop it post conception, you are killing a life, right? That is, that is kind of the pro-life way of thinking about things. Now, is it murder to stop it before conception, right? Some people would say, yes, you shouldn't be stopping something that God is trying to like bring about. Um, and some people would say, no, it's fine because it's not a life yet. Right. Um, and I actually kind of fall into that category. I'm okay with being convinced of this. So if you're listening and you're like, Caleb, you are absolutely wrong. I'd love to chat with you because I'm fine with being convinced otherwise. Um, I won't be convinced otherwise about life not being, not starting at conception. But if you want to say, you know, prior to that, you shouldn't be doing birth control or anything like that. Um, we can have that conversation. So like right now, my wife, um, she probably, well, I'll say it anyway. She's on birth control, right? Because we don't want a kid right now. We don't think that God wants us to have a child right now. It, uh, we don't think it's in the cards. There are lots of things that we're doing in life right now. Do we want a family ultimately? Yes. Do we want kids ultimately? Yes. Is right now the moment for that, given the things that God has us doing in life right now? Probably not. So should we be proactive in that? Yeah, I'd guess so. Um, I don't know if you have a different opinion on that, Michael, but... Um, no, I mean, I, I share your view on this and I actually think that, so when it comes to the contraceptive issue, I think a lot of this comes from the Catholic church and I'm not, I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out where their proof text is for this in the Bible. But I think the closest you could probably get is Ur and Onan. So there's these brothers in the old Testament and and Ur is like abusive to this woman. So God strikes him dead. And then Onan, his brother is charged with redeeming her. Right, so he he his the brother has to marry her now and essentially give her kids, right? Yeah, because that's the that's in the law in the Bible. Right, and so Onan, instead of being fruitful and multiplying with this woman, he spills his seed on the ground, is how the the Bible yeah, yeah, puts yeah. it, and then he's struck dead for doing that. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, Ur and Onan are not good guys, but. I don't know if that We're means... We're sorry for this really bizarre story. If yeah. you're confused at what's happening, he has sex with her and then pulls out, essentially. Yeah, and, and so I don't know if that's where they they get the doctrine on not using contraceptive or on not using contraceptives, maybe. I mean, I'm trying to think of a more clear example of this in Scripture, and I just don't think there is one. Yeah, I can't think of any. And so the answer, like if the person asking about where in the Bible does it talk about it, I just don't think it does. And I think that if we're going to draw... A contraceptive argument from the text, we'd have to go to Onan, but I don't know if that is a strong yeah. enough example to yeah. justify. Uh, because here's the thing, Onan was also under decree to do this from God, right, right. and so, like, what are we going to say that everyone who has sex with someone else is under that decree? Right. No, uh, the decree that we are all under is to be fruitful and multiplied. That is true. But God doesn't say you have to do it at this time, in this moment, at this point in your life, right? It's very different. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the social situations were just totally different from what we have now versus what we had then, right? Um, you had men and women getting married at like as early as 13 in the Hebrew culture back then, right? Uh, that's different than what we have now, right? Um, you women didn't work, partly because they didn't have too many rights and that's, you know, Obviously, I don't think that's necessarily the best thing, but um, that's very different now. It's like, if my wife didn't work, I don't know what our financial situation would look like. And for her to have a kid at this moment before we have that figured out would be detrimental to our financial situation 
And that would be detrimental to, I mean, this was a conversation earlier. It's like do a job so that you can have enough in, to cover your needs so that you can do what God calls you to do. If that happened, I don't know if we would have enough to do what we need to do to do the things that God has called us to do, right? Yeah. It's like kids, yeah, they're expensive. <laughs> yeah, when we're thinking about like the the time that Onan lived in, this is a time where having more kids meant survival a yes, lot of times. Which like is kids, not the case anymore. Right, yeah. It's, sometimes it's the opposite of the yeah. case now. Like, In fact, she would have not been useful to the family anymore and in... And, um, in afraid of potentially losing her status in the family if she didn't bear children, because that was the case back then. Um, there was a Jacob um, married Leah and Rachel, and he loved Rachel but didn't love Leah. Um, but Leah was the only one that could have kids, and Rachel was barren for a while. Eventually, God allowed Rachel to have kids. But she lost her status as like important wife in that family relationship because she couldn't have kids. And it's like, that's a real danger that women faced back then, right? But if you had kids, you had your status, right? And so that I think, like you were saying, is more of the concern in that one story. And I don't know, I think I can't, I don't, I, I would have to have a, a conversation with, um, I think a priest who's very like, well-read, well-versed in this yeah. Um, to actually hear their side of the story. And I will admit, I haven't done my fair share of that, which is why I said from the very beginning, I am happy to be proven wrong about this. Yeah. yeah. I just, what I believe right now is I believe to be true. Yeah, and I think that like there's an easy opportunity to straw man the Catholic Church in this. Yeah, just and by that's saying, not what we're trying to do. Right, so like, you could say that one of the most popular ones is that, oh, so you have a church that um, is baptizing infants and is putting a huge amount of uh, emphasis on that, like their salvation. And then you're also telling their people not to have, not to use contraceptives. So you have a machine for attendance growth. Right, right. For, Whereas like the Methodist church does baby baptism, but we don't have a standard for what it means to use birth control. So it's like, you know, there are churches that do baby baptism that aren't doing that. Right, and yep. so that's yep. not the motive. Yeah, so that's the thing, I guess, both of us really haven't been too helpful on this question, but uh, yeah, I mean, I might do some digging on this to see if there's a better proof text yeah. than the one I mean, that I think we, we brought up. To. But well, um, we I, have I, given I, you our opinions and where we stand yeah. on it. Like I said, we're happy to be changed on that. So we'll to as a for the benefit of you, we as pastors do not know everything, and we'll do some digging on this. Um, yeah. But I just you know we're using contraceptives right now in my own life and I don't think I'm sinning by doing that. Um, if I find out that I think I am like, obviously I'll need to repent for that. But until then it's like, these are the, this is where it takes wisdom and discernment. And it's good to ask questions like this because they're opportunities for us to practice wisdom and discernment. Yeah. That's, that's so thank good. you for asking that. It's an opportunity for both Michael and I to practice wisdom and discernment. For sure. I, I agree. Uh, last one. Why doesn't the church talk about singleness as a permanent state of life? How can the church better address the needs of single people in the church? Great question. I think I think that the 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 low hanging fruit. I'll take the low hanging fruit and I'll leave the hard part for Caleb. <laughs> uh, the low hanging fruit is because for the vast majority of people, being single sucks and they burn with passion and it's not what they're called to do. It's, they don't have the gift of singleness and they don't have, yeah. you know, they're not there. They need to get married right, right, and right. they need to have a family. And um, there are very good uh, 
continuation of the species reasons for that let's say like mm-hmm. it's it's that's be fruitful and multiply yeah, well if yeah, you didn't yeah. have a strong urge to do look being married brings a lot of pain and having children brings a lot of pain but the positives have to be strong enough to outweigh yeah. the, the pain it's and actually that's the probably why. as much as we don't think this it's probably easier to be single right because mm-hmm. you don't have to worry like you can be responsible for yourself primarily and nobody else I no longer have me, Caleb, as my primary responsibility. Now my primary responsibility is Jesse, right? And if I have kids, they become my secondary or primary secondary responsibility, and I become third, right? So it goes, when I was single, it was just me. And yeah, it came with problems, and it's not the best, but at least it's easy because all I have to think about really is me, right? Um, and there's like a, a sense of there can come without a sense of selfishness. Um, I think you can do singleness without that. Um, but once I got married, Jesse became my responsibility. When I have kids, if God blesses me with kids, they will become second and I will become third. So I go from first to second priority to third priority um, in my life, right? And that's hard to do, right? So, but I think part of the reason why the church doesn't do this well is because we don't actually know how to, by and large, and I know this because we do this with what we talked about earlier. By and large, the church doesn't know how to have hard conversations about situations in life that seem... Because we think of singleness, we equate singleness and hopelessness, right? Yeah. So if we talked about earlier, about not people by and large, Christians not knowing what to do with people who are feeling hopeless earlier when it came to anxiety, depression, um, that hopeless situation that we talked about half an hour ago. If we don't know what to do with people who are hopeless, then we won't know what to do with people who are feeling hopeless in their singleness either, right? So the reason the church hasn't talked about it is because by and large, the church isn't equipped to talk about it because pastors didn't get trained to talk about it. Um, Everyone you know got married. And so it's like, well, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to live single. And there's no resources for that, right? So that's part of the reason why the church has never talked about it. Is it wrong for doing so? Yes. Should there at somewhere along the line, the church should have said, we should really have avenues to help people who are in the midst of this find ways in which they're not hopeless anymore in the midst of their singleness, right? To be useful in the midst of their singleness, right? Um, but we didn't do that. And I think we're reaping the consequence in a generation that's particularly not knowing what to do in their singleness, right? So do you think that a question like this comes from a person who maybe is struggling to find a partner and is like, broken down because of that or do you think it comes from a position of someone who is actually just kind of okay being alone and they're worried something's fundamentally wrong with them because of that i I don't know but either way if you're afraid that something's fundamentally wrong with you for that i don't think there is right i think god has particularly put that on your life so that you can serve him in a very particular capacity yeah and if you are that person you have a responsibility not to pull someone into that who's yeah. not like you. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you think God might be calling you to a season of singleness, not because you just keep getting dumped by everyone that you go out with, but because you actually are okay with not getting married ever, come find us because God has probably a lot of work for you and we want to help you find whatever that is, right? Um, if you're thinking this because you just keep getting dumped by everybody, but you want to be in a relationship that that's a whole different thing and mm-hmm. maybe you have some relational things that you need to work out come find us because we'll help you with that too <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good place to wrap it up just come talk to us we appreciate you guys uh we really uh 
thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. If you have not been to United yet, it is Tuesday, 727 p.m. at the Hub, the Ohio Room at IUP. Uh, this coming, so this is going to probably come out on Friday. So uh, this coming Tuesday, yeah, this coming after Tuesday. this is released, we're actually going to be a commonplace at 727 and we're going to do trivia. So come to yeah. that. It's a great opportunity for you to bring a friend just to meet some new people. If you're outgoing and you know some not outgoing people who have social anxiety, bring them and make it an opportunity to befriend them better. Yeah. Yeah. Put it into practice. Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. Have a great day. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Uloft podcast. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. Also, come out and join us for a Unite every Tuesday at 7.27 p.m. This is a time of music, friends, and important teaching. You don't want to miss it. You can learn more about Unites, as well as everything else we do, by visiting unitediup.com. Thank you all for hanging out with us, and we will see you in the next episode.